Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today's episode features, because we briefly discussed our topics before the episode, two instances of reproductive assistant technologies. So this may not be an episode for everyone. It, we will reference some reproductive terms and processes that you may not want to listen to or you may not want people in your surroundings to listen to, including tiny people like children. We don't have a problem with it if you want them to listen, but listener discretion is advised. <laughs> it's like right before an HBO. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and go first. What happens to unused IVF embryos? Hmm. So what is an IVF embryo? The first test tube baby, and I'm making air quotes. <laughs> That was a, such a, what was it? Like, you can make fun of people in the 80s. People would call you a test tube baby. You test tube baby. Yeah, it was a weird social phenomenon of yes. discomfort with technology turning into an insult. And I never knew what it was when I was a kid. So I always imagined uh, people like growing inside of a giant tube. Like, I didn't really understand it. Yeah, it, it was an interesting phenomenon. The first test tube baby or IVF embryo was born in 1978. Now, the first one that was viable and born, it was in 1978. There wow. were more than, uh, she's still alive. Her name is Louise Brown. Oh, that's nice. And she's the, my age, actually. Yeah, she would be right around your age. Mm -hmm. And there have been more than 300 failed attempts prior to that successful fertilization. Hmm. The first frozen embryo baby was born in 1983. An IVF embryo is created by introducing sperm and egg outside of a womb in a lab setting. The embryo is then aged a few days in a lab setting that is conducive to cell division, and then either frozen slowly or quickly, depending on the capabilities of the lab. The freezing and thawing process may involve manipulating water levels in the cells to prevent cellular damage, because yeah. freezing can do a lot of damage to a cell of just about any living thing, and it can include adding a cryoprotective agent. Once the embryo, which is usually about eight cells big when it's frozen, mm -hmm. it starts as one cell and then divides and then divides because a, a sperm and an egg are actually like two half cells almost. Mm -hmm. Anyway, after the embryo is thawed and held at 98.6 degrees, it can be implanted into a uterus. So how many IVF embryos are there? A bajillion. There are a lot. It, based on CDC data in 2017, there were 284,385 assisted reproductive technology cycles in 448 reporting clinics, and they resulted in 68,908 live births, including also 78,052 live-born infants, so some were twins, multiple pregnancies. Wow. Of those cycles, the 280 plus thousand, 87,535 were egg or embryo banking cycles in which the intent was to freeze all resulting eggs or embryos for future cycles. Okay. 
And then right around 1.7% of all infants born in the U.S. every year are conceived using some kind of assistive reproductive technology, and most of those are from in vitro fertilization. Oh, I had no idea it was that high. Yeah, it's a pretty substantial number, and it's, a, it's an intensive process that people go through. Yeah. And it's, it's become much more approachable and sort of socially accepted. Like, you can talk about it instead of being, you know, some, your kid being mocked for being a test tube baby. <laughs> test tube baby. <laughs> there are several thousand embryos, tens of thousands of embryos, banked annually. And because of improvements in, in v- IVF cycles and implantation in uteruses, it's not common to implant more than two embryos in a given cycle any longer, both for uh, safety's sake for the mother and the baby, because multiple pregnancies can be very dangerous for the mom and for the kiddos. And you just, most people don't want to have a litter of babies like a dog. Yeah, that's really hard on you before and after the babies are born. Yes. Tough stuff. So because there are fewer embryos thawed and implanted per IVF implantation cycle, there are more and more frozen embryos being stored and because IVF is becoming more and more successful because the technology is improving there are more and more embryos that are more possible babies than a family might want Mm -hmm. because you don't really get to decide I mean to some extent you can decide how many eggs to try to fertilize but having sort of a backup plan depending on why you're using the assistive reproductive technologies means that having more embryos than you think you might need initially has value for you for family planning. Mm -hmm. Once the embryos are frozen, as long as the conditions are kept consistent, the embryos can be viable for a long time. There's been at least one 13-year-old embryo Oh wow! That was used, and I read somewhere about a twenty-year-old embryo being used, but they didn't. F- there was no follow-up on that. Right. So I'll say I read that once, but the thirteen-year-old one was, which is funny to think of a thirteen-year-old embryo, because I think <laughs> of a I think of a high school freshman embryo. <laughs> but you know, if if the lab is good at what they do. It can be possible. In the U.S., and a lot of this is going to be U.S.-centric, laboratories can be certified by independent certification authorities, and they take into account, these authorities take into account CDC and Health and Human Services recommendations for requirements for clinics, Mm -hmm. but the clinics also have to report success rates to the CDC annually. And I'm mentioning the process and the sort of certification and stuff as a precursor to discussing what happens to the unused embryos. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm at the unused embryo part and it is really legally patchy. It is very ethically fraught in all directions. It is something that I would highly recommend people who are going through IVF cycles ask a lot of questions of their clinic if you know if this becomes a thing you're thinking about and you're also listening to this podcast anyway and you may you may find it interesting to think about 
what kind of feelings and thoughts you have while you're listening to me talk about this stuff because it is so legally and ethically and interpersonally complicated in every direction. So what do you do when your embryos are no longer needed by you and your family? There are three technical options. IVF clinics usually have clients sign contracts to determine what is going to be done of the three following options. You can have them discarded. Mm -hmm. They would be discarded as biohazardous medical waste. You can have them donated to research. It depends on the state. Oh, and with the discarded, I have no idea if clinics provide their customers with embryos for, say, some kind of funereal project. That might be a clinic-by-clinic basis. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Discarded in some way. No longer made available for reproduction. We'll go with that. Again, donated to research. Whether or not this is possible depends on the state in which you live and the state in which you would donate the embryonic tissue. And you can donate them to another family for use. You can also store them largely indefinitely in cryogenic uh, suspension. We'll go with suspension. So let's start with donating to families or adopting embryos. So that's my last thing on the list. Adoption laws are very scattered Mm -hmm. in the U.S. They depend on the state, and they often don't really cover embryonic adoption, but they do cover donation if the laws exist at all. Mm -hmm. Some groups, such as the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, have objected to the term adoption at all for embryos due to the fuzzy legal status of these embryos. I can see that. It has not been the case yet that these embryos have been found to have personhood and some states do have laws on the books that state that fetuses have personhood as they're gestating but currently as of my knowledge right now and please correct me if i'm wrong there have no there have been no court decisions that have indicated that these ivf embryos have personhood so that makes the adoption thing a little a little peculiar compared to adopting an already born child. This is a quote. While many courts are reluctant to classify embryos as property, they also do not characterize them as human beings. As a result, embryo adoption programs may differ in how they define embryos in their legal agreements. Some may refer to it as a transfer of property, while others may incorporate traditional adoption language into their legal documents. So it may be a case simply of transfer of property. And I'll go into that uh, when I go into disputes people have had over unused embryos, but we'll go with adoption right now. Donating families of the unused IVF embryos, are they contractually relinquish all parental rights And the adoptive family signs adoption paperwork. So the adoptive family takes on all parental rights. The donating family relinquishes all parental rights prior to implantation. So this isn't something where, if this is done sort of legally, it's not something where changing your mind after the baby's born is all that likely to result in custody of the child being awarded to the donating parents. Right. This typically happens through a program to handle the paperwork and the process with families. So Mm -hmm. it's a legal process. 
in the U.S., because embryos are considered largely property and not really people, the owners, and that's in quotes, or the donors of the embryo, transfer the ownership via contract law. Okay. Which is, it's, again, that's why I say this is so messy, because some people would deeply object to this, and some people would fully endorse it. So it's the type of thing where, in Georgia... In 2009, there was legislation passed granting embryo adoption parents the right to finalize their adoption in court, so it's not just a full-on contract. It also includes the, finalizing the adoption process in court. Huh. And in Louisiana, which is interesting, Louisiana has had comprehensive sort of IVF and embryonic law on its books since 1991, even, maybe even earlier. Huh. Louisiana has really comprehensive laws compared to a lot of states. Wow, I wonder why. I couldn't find out why. Yeah. Maybe it was just somebody's pet project that they found really yeah. important. In Louisiana, embryos are considered juridical persons, which means an entity other than a natural person created by law and recognized as a legal entity having a distinct identity, legal personality, duties, and rights. Also called an artificial person juridical entity, juristic person, or legal person. Uh, this is kind of like the, the corporations or people law. I wondered. It's a similar concept. Yeah. So it, the Louisiana law grants them a kind of personhood. Right. And actually there have been, and I'll get into court cases later, other kinds of special interests awarded to embryos during processes of determining what's to be done with them. Right. So embryo adoption is in a lot of ways considered similar to egg or sperm donation <laughs> and egg and sperm donation. It's very clear that the donors have no parental rights and the recipients are considered the legal parents of the child at birth. So that comparison, I think clarifies some things in terms of decision-making when right. it comes to adopting embryos. Now, what about, paying for the couple's IVF cycles and then accepting the embryos or paying them after the fact. That is not recommended and in a lot of states not legal. Okay. It would be considered the sale of human tissues, which are illegal in a lot of states. And then also the American Society for Reproductive Medica Medicine, the American Medical Association, and a few others uh, do not recommend it on ethical grounds, mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense. Selling people is, or potential people, or however you define it, selling body parts, not necessarily the best way to do things. And I know we come across this when you are trying, if, if you have like remains of someone and you want to sell bones, it's illegal in a lot of places. So if you have like a skull or something and you can't provide provenance past a certain date, then you can't sell it. It's illegal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There are approximately eight embryo adoption programs in the U.S. And I say approximately because there might have been one that cropped up after or discontinued business after <laughs> okay. I read the article. Yeah. It's not like it there's happens. it's not like there's ghost <laughs> adoption programs. And I feel like this would be a really difficult thing to do underground. Yeah. Because of the storage involved. Yes. And the medical care involved. I there may very well be very unscrupulous clinics, but it seems like an awful lot of difficulty to do this extra legally. 
Just guessing. Well, I mean, what are you going to do with them if you don't have a doctor doing it? Like, yeah, exactly. Like, was you just going to go and put them in your body? That doesn't yeah, even it, work. It doesn't work. So <laughs> it's the type of thing. It would be borderline impossible to do outside of the proper process. There are around 215 embryo donation programs at fertility clinics in the U.S. And here's one other thing that I thought was an interesting sort of wrinkle in this is that Opened or closed adoptions depend on the agency's setup that you use, the embryo adoption program. So open adoptions are adoptions where the parents, the prospective donors and the prospective acceptors of the donation, are they meet the child that if there's a child that results, they may be able to find out who their biological parents are, things right. like that. And then closed means that the prospective donors and the prospective acceptors of the donation don't meet. And it's difficult for the resulting child to find out about their biological parents. Right. And this is a point of contention on both sides for adoption, regardless of if it happens an embryo, an infant, a teenager, all of it. It's pretty complicated as to whether you support either side or neither side and a third option. So let's go next to why you would want to do medical research on an IVF embryo. I assume stem cells. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) That's correct. And so embryonic stem cells specifically are cells that are not fully differentiated into tissues and can be encouraged to differentiate in specific ways to be used medically. There are non-embryonic stem cells, and with processing, some may end up being as easily used as embryonic stem cells. Mm -hmm. They may be able to separate some embryonic cells from amniotic fluid, for example, Mm -hmm. which, while it's not a zero process to collect, it's maybe simpler legally, if not ethically, to collect than an embryo. Most stem cells donated from IV, or come from donated IVF embryos. Stem cells tend to do best when collected from four to five-day-old embryos, and IVF embryos are at that age range. Right, so, so they're the perfect, perfect time range. Yes. Stem cells were only isolated from humans in 1998. It's a very new technology, and the laws may or may not catch up to the reality of the technology. Mm-hmm. A lot of states fully ban embryo and fetal research. There are eight states which allow research via statutory law. And I'm not going to go through listing the states because there's 50 and you can I'll put in the show notes which ones they are. <laughs> Some laws do disallow, as I said, the sale of tissues and they can only be donated. So right. it's not, by and large, you're not going to find anyone that's going to give you money for your IVF embryos. Mm, which is... likely. Which is, I don't know, I don't think selling people is a good thing, personally. No, and the suggestion of selling people isn't a good thing either. And even if you don't think embryos are people, donating them, you know, what? anyway. It's so murky, like, I can see... It's very murky. You know, I've been referring to these embryos as people. They don't have legal personhood, but they are human cells, human tissue, which, by and large, you cannot sell. right. Louisiana specifically prohibits research on IVF embryos. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
A lot of laws are structured around the consent and requests of the patient, which would be the egg and sperm providers for the IVF or the egg and sperm owners, actually. Okay. Because there are some places where you can purchase sperm or purchase eggs. Right. And those people would relinquish their parental rights to whoever bought them. And the buyer would then be the owner of the tissues. So it's one of the few tissues that you can actually buy. Right. Which is interesting. But not everywhere in Canada. It's completely illegal. In a lot of places, it's probably completely illegal to buy uh, eggs or sperm. A lot of laws specifically restrict or ban research, cloning, transport, experimentation on fetal tissue. And a lot of restrictions are very specific to cloning. Cloning is something that has made a lot of people very uncomfortable since it was a thing, and particularly human cloning. And so there are a lot of laws on the books that specifically prohibit any cloning research, and that can include with embryonic tissue. Which is so sad because I decided I didn't want children when I learned that I couldn't make a clone of myself. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of the... I'm sorry, Sarah. You can't do it. (laughs) I'm so mad. That's sort of the... I will clone my dog, though, probably. (laughs) Aww. Speaking of that, this is totally off topic, but there's a documentary called Tabloid. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating documentary about a very strange woman and a very strange occurrence in her life. And she also was the lady that was the first lady to have her dogs cloned. Nice. Yeah. I like how you, a very strange lady, like it happened right after I said I was going to clone my dog. Well, and the cloning had nothing to do with her being strange. (laughs) She was... I say that because I don't want to spoil the story for people, but she... Her story and everyone else's story don't match in terms of most of the events in her life, except for the dog cloning that matches. (laughs) And there is the dog that was cloned. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think the dog's name was Booger. (laughs) Sorry, this is totally off topic. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that's sort of the overview of laws in terms of donated IVF embryos. And then we've also talked about the murkiness of IVF embryo donation. Let's talk about what, if any, rights embryos have. So they may actually be able to inherit property. No, really? A person can inherit property if conceived before but born after the death of a property owner. Oh, come on. Because, but, but because uh, they are often not considered persons legally it's sort of a question but they were conceived yeah and they can last 13 years so if if grandpappy dies eight years on and then junior or the third i guess would be is born nine years on do they get a cut of the cut of the cake i don't know so when we get into my topic this was actually mentioned in siblings of sperm donors i guess if it's considered a legal nightmare because if you have no living will and you die and you have 37 mm-hmm. siblings, where does your stuff go to? Because you all, all you have are half siblings from your sperm donor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- it's, anyway. <laughs> it's a legal mess. Yeah. It's an absolute legal mess. Uh, New Hampshire legislature 
enacted a bill mandating that before embryonic transfer procedures, the potential parents must make guardianship provisions for the protective or prospective child by amending their existing estate planning documents or executing estate planning documents. Ugh. They also must go through medical examinations and counseling before the transfer, and the law encourages parties to plan for the future of their prospective child. Now, I mention that simply because that New Hampshire law is unusual, and that's not a requirement for a lot of places. And it's not a bad thing to think about, and we'll get into some of the disputed cases of sort of who gets the embryos in a little bit. So those are two sort of inheritance issues that can be settled but aren't always settled. Before I go into the disputed, what about abandoned embryos? They're, they have to exist. I mean, they, you stop paying your cryobank fees and what do they do with them? Exactly. So there are hundreds of thousands of embryos cryopreserved without intention of future use. Not that they are banked and then people are like, oh, we'll never use those. It's that once people have decided that their family is the size they want it, they may have embryos left over. There may be as many as 4 million. It's more likely that there are around 600,000. But, I don't know, it's kind of hard to count that many, I guess. Sometimes people just stop paying storage fees, or they move away, or they disappear. It's got to happen. I mean, it's just like storage here. Like regular storage places, they stop paying their fees, and then they're like, oh, great. Well, and a lot of people feel badly about deciding to discard embryos Mm -hmm. so they make sort of the more passive decision to just stop paying for the storage assuming that the IVF clinic will discard for them and make make more of the decision for them it's more psychologically comfortable yeah it takes about six hundred dollars a year to store embryos depending on the location and the storage situation and there are no real federal regulations for this in the U.S., but there are some legal interpretation. Can you adopt out embryos if the parent doesn't explicitly consent? No. Probably not. I, I wouldn't try it personally. Can you dispose of them? Yes, you can legally as uh, medical waste. But a lot of clinics will continue to store embryos after payments have ended. They don't like the idea of destroying embryos if they're not express wishes of the parents. Which makes a lot of sense because these clinics are not showing up to be like, mwahaha, embryos. We just want all the embryos to stay. They want to help people have kids. Like, that's the point of them being set up. So it's sort of murky for the IVF clinics in terms of what they want to do versus what's financially and physically feasible. Mm Mm-hmm. IVF clinics often have to take the lead in terms of setting up a contract and system that handles abandonment with a protocol, whatever that may be. Reverting custody, disposal automatically, depends on the clinic, and there are at least 215 clinics. So that's 215 different... I mean, some clinics may have similar or the same decision-making processes, but it's still 215 entities. So, and I mean, it's, it's not like a regular storage facility where they just auction off the stuff in your locker to help pay for the fees. You can't really do that. Yeah. <laughs> I've covered I've covered why, but I don't think the clinics want to do that either. Like no, it's not the goal. I doubt it. So, abandoned embryos are a big component of where do IVF embryos go? Right. Cuz so we've covered they can be donated with the legal wrangling involved in that for adoption. They can be donated for medical research 
but it depends on where you are. And then, unfortunately, they can be abandoned and they can be disposed of. So what happens if the people who are technically considered owners, again, air quotes, of the embryos disagree about what to do with them? Oh, geez. Mm -hmm. It's essentially either a custody dispute or a property ownership dispute. Depends. So I'm going to go through a few instances because all of this has been done in state, in the U.S., in state case law. And I'll mention it, uh, Canadian law as well, but I think that this is probably the most messy section, but it's also a good section to listen to if you want to come up with the right questions to ask when going through the IVF process. So in 1991 in Tennessee, a couple were given joint custody of their unused embryos. Originally, the, the woman had been given sole custody for implantation to donate to another couple. The man objected as it would be forced parenthood. And this is not like physical autonomy issues with Roe v. Wade, because nobody's pregnant. It's just uh, entities outside of anybody's body. The court agreed with him, and so the embryos couldn't be implanted legally. The court agreed with this forced parenthood Mm -hmm. argument. And that's pretty common. Huh. Because there's no pregnancy taking place, it's not a pregnancy or abortion or custody law issue. And because the donation is an adoption, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't necessarily be forced to have parental rights, but it doesn't mean, you know, that he can be forced to become a parent anyway. Some legal scholars posit that the right to a biological child, if there are no other ways to have one for the parent, might trump unwanted parenthood. And that has happened. In a Pennsylvania case, a man wanted his ex-wife to not get the remaining embryos from their process. She had had cancer, so she was incapable or unlikely to be capable of conceiving on her own. The court ruled in her favor as it was likely her only chance at parenthood of genetic children. Wow. A New Jersey case similar to the Tennessee case. And you can find the names of the people. Like, why would you want it? Like, obviously, this is not a good relationship anymore. Why would you want to have a kid with that person at that point? Well, it may not be the case that they would require the other person to have parental rights, but it's also, I don't know. They yeah. already decided to create the embryos. Yeah. Maybe that was the decision. She, she has no, well, can she can have that. I'm assuming she has eggs or maybe she had a, had to have, I don't know. I'm confused by that. With cancer treatments, it can, it, for women, it can make eggs unviable. Oh, okay. So it's not uncommon for women going through cancer treatments, depending on the type of treatment, to bank their eggs oh. or bank embryos. Mm. I'm not a doctor. I'm just going to say that. It makes sense. <laughs> the New Jersey case, it's not the A New Jersey case, similar to the Tennessee case, a man wanted embryos to be donated or just stated by a surrogate. The woman wanted them discarded. New Jersey public policy was found by the New Jersey Supreme Court not to take into consideration contracts to terminate familial relations. They did not look at the couple or the contract the couple had signed that said the remaining embryos were to be discarded, but decided in favor of discarding the embryos as the man could have biological children other ways. Ah. So one important thing that I just said there is the court disregarded the contract. Yep. And that happens a lot in Mm. a lot of these cases. And so IVF clinics have had to take the lead in coming up with these contracts to try to figure out disposition of embryos that are not going to be implanted. 
but that doesn't mean that they're legally in line with the state in which you live or have embryos. Right. There was an Arizona case where one partner got Arizona legislature to create a law stating that any party that will implant the embryos should get custody. Then an appeal was awarded the embryos. The contract at the IVF clinic stated joint decision-making. This is not uncommon. There may be clauses in IVF contracts that say a trial judge can overrule a contract. The partner that wanted the embryos implanted could no longer have biological children. So it would have likely been the case that it would have been decided in their favor anyway. Mm-hmm. A Missouri case, uh, a guardian ad litem was designated for the frozen IVF embryos, which hadn't been done legally before. And the court determined that both partners were gamete providers, so they were in equal standing, so there were no legal concerns with regards to bodily autonomy, similar to abortion law. The bo- abortion law has concerns about, about bodily autonomy. Uh, IVF embryo laws, not as much. Right. Because, again, nobody's pregnant yet. Right. There's been an embryo conceived. The court ruled in favor of the party that did not want the embryos implanted in anyone, their right to not be a parent, as the other parent was able to have, or assumed to be able to have biological children in another way. So there's different states ruling in different ways, weighing the right to not be a parent, and some right to privacy, versus the right to have biological children. Right. And Missouri, the Missouri courts ruled that the legal consideration of personhood of fetuses, which is on the books in Missouri, did not overrule the couple's right to make personal decisions, however they wanted to deal with or divvy up, I don't know, mm-hmm. interact with these embryos. They did determine that the embryos were property, but of special interest because they had the potential to become people. The court determined the contract was not a full enough disclosure and the couple did not have enough understanding to be considered. The embryos were considered property held jointly and used to be determined by both owners, air quotes, AKA both parents. This is a balancing approach that courts often take in terms of determining who gets to decide what happens to the embryos after a couple breaks up, including non-marriage breaking up, because some people go through IVF cycles and are not married. Well, and there are plenty of um, lesbian couples have have gone through IVF cycles and then their relationship ended and they couldn't get married until, you know, recently. Yeah, what, 2015? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some courts use a strictly contractual approach. Uh, In New York, the courts honored the contractual disposition of a couple's embryos, even though after the couple divorced, the woman wanted custody. Washington State ordered a contract clause to be honored that had older than five-year-old embryos of a couple destroyed after they got divorced. The couple each wanted to use the embryos differently, but the embryos were older than five years. So the Washington court just enforced the contract since the people couldn't couldn't agree. The Illinois appellate court provided a woman with custody of embryos when they determined there was an oral contract between ex-boyfriend and ex-girlfriend at the time of IVF procedures. So this is all... Oh, that's murky. Yeah, these are all very different decisions. Right. All of them are. Yeah. A... uh, I think I meant Maryland. No, Macedonian. I'm putting state two-letter abbreviations. Yeah. 
I swear I meant Maryland with this one, but I put Massachusetts. They threw out an IVF contract as the wording was too open to interpretation and also contrary to public policy. And they insisted the couple come up with a mutual decision. Otherwise, the embryos would have to stay in storage. Yep. So that was kind of coming up with their own contract through the court. Anyway. And again, Louisiana has had most comprehensive custody and IVF laws since before 1991. So that's, in a very quick nutshell, what happens to unused IVF embryos. The answer to the question loosely is a whole lot of things depending on where you live and when you live, like what year it is. And it's not a bad idea to participate very heavily in the legal aspects of this process if you're going through it. Absolutely. And think about all the ethical implications as well. Yeah. Beforehand. Before you you do it. And for people that have IVF embryos that they're storing that they may be thinking about disposition thereof. It's not a bad idea, especially if you're on good terms with the co-owner, AKA (laughs) co-gamete provider provider, to figure out what you want. Cause you may be able to come up with an estate plan or another contract or something while you're on the same page about your relationship. And hopefully your relationship never ends. But luck favors the prepared. Figure it out. (laughs) So that's that, Sarah. Yay. Oh, I forgot Canadian law. Oh. Uh, There is a federal Canadian law that states that uh, the two gamete donors, we'll go with that, have joint custody of the IVF embryo. And they have to come to a mutual decision. But there was one case in Ontario where the couple bought eggs and sperm in the U.S. and had embryos created in vitro in Canada. Oh, dear. And so that doesn't match the Canadian federal law. But it is illegal to buy or sell sperm and eggs in Canada, but apparently not in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they did it illegally. Depends on the state. And so they had contracts stated the ex-wife had rights to the property created in this scenario. So that was what was decided, contrary to federal law. So they didn't have joint custody because they honored the contract from the IVF clinic in this instance because it was not genetic material from both of the sort of owners. Wow, that's a mess. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm not an attorney in reproductive law. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure there are attorneys that specialize in it, but it's got to be just... A mess. It's a headache. <laughs> So I'm going to talk about sperm donation and this, this like jigsaws right kind of perfectly into Emily's topic of IVF embryos. So you may have heard of the Sperminator. What an awful name. Yeah. Yeah. So he's been in the news lately and there are numerous stories of babies being found to have the same sperm donor daddy, usually this, the doctor the uh, IVF or the fertility <gasps> doctor, unbeknownst to the mother. Uh, but what is sperm donation? How do you become a sperm donor? What happens? Where do you go? So I'm going to tell you. So uh, we're going to get into what is sperm donation without getting into her- human reproduction because I don't want to give a birds and the bees talk to all y'all. I'm pretty sure y'all understand what happens. And if you don't, look it up. Wikipedia. 
Sperm donation is when men or people with testicles who produce semen, I'm not going to disclude anyone, and er, disinclude, disinclude, yes, donate, donate or sell their sperm to a clinic or donate it directly to an individual for use of conceiving babies. So there is the sperm bank route, and you can, like the sperminator, do the direct donation route to people. And generally, the, I, the FDA says that sperm donors and donations themselves need to be tested pretty thoroughly for health and safety because of infectious diseases, because this is, after all, a bodily fluid gross. <laughs> Most clinics screen potential donors pretty heavily for medical conditions and other risk factors associated with them. The FDA requires basic screening. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine recommends that people who want to be sperm donors and their donations be screened A by age. So many sperm banks have an upper age limit. Physical exam. So sperm donors have to go through a blood and urine tests for infectious diseases and have to have physical exams. They have to go through semen testing. So they'll go through several samples of, of semen and they generally want you to abstain from ejaculation for 48 to 72 hours. They will analyze your sperm for quality, quantity, and movement. They'll flash freeze it, and as Emily talked about earlier, they'll flash freeze it and then put a cryopreservative into it and keep it for six months and then retest it again for the same things. They want you to do genetic testing, and this all depends on the cryobank or sperm bank that you go to, and they'll do a blood sample and test you for carriers of genetic conditions and, so that they can disclose that if they choose you as a sperm donor, which is a whole other ball of axe to the potential people who are getting the sperm. So if you want to be a sperm donor, you're gonna, it's a good idea to ask them which tests they perform because some banks are much more extensive than others. They're going to take a family medical history because donors need to provide details about the medical history of at least two generations of your family. So they're looking for hereditary diseases that will disqualify you as a sperm donor. They're going to do a psychological evaluation because this has happened. People don't disclose their psychological mental illness history or, or mental illness history of, the, of their family, and it has come up that uh, babies and children have ended up with mental illnesses. Nobody knows where they came from. Well, and it may be the case that the patient themselves has no idea because it's such a, a new thing. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe grandpa was just weird and talked to ghosts, but he was actually schizophrenic. Maybe there are ghosts. Maybe there are ghosts. <laughs> I'm not casting aspersions on grandpa. <laughs> Then they're going to want a personal and sexual history, and a lot of this has to do with uh, HIV. I guess um, gay men for a long time were barred from being sperm donors, which is really unfortunate because they it's like the blood donation thing. They had had sex with men, um, and which made them at high risk for HIV, mm. which is unfortunate. And they're going to ask about intravenous drug use, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and your lifestyle, basically. They just want to know that stuff. If donors test positive for any of the medical conditions that they're looking for, they are notified and generally will get you treatment or counseling uh, if you need it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. If they pass the screening, 
They sign a consent form. Again, their sperm is frozen for six months and then retested again for all that other stuff. If a donor and their sperm makes it through pretty extensive screening process, their sperm will be part of a sperm bank registry and can be ordered by people who need to order sperm, presumably to make babies and not say for art projects because I have no idea what else you'd do with it. I can't think of anything. <laughs> can't think of anything I'd want to use it for otherwise. So what is a sperm bank? According to the American Pregnancy Association, AmericanPregnancy.org, and we're just going to go over what a sperm bank is in case you didn't know by the name that it's a bank full of sperm, is, is also called a cryobank or a tissue bank and is a facility that collects, freezes, and stores human sperm. Some places actually um, will do dual duty and, and have embryos as well. The sperm kept at a sperm bank is either donated by people to be used by couples themselves for IVF or for men who want to preserve their sperm um, for future use. This mm -hmm. could be because they are worried that they're going to be too old and their sperm's not going to be good anymore when they're old, so they're going to bank their sperm for later. I guess it's common for women to do the same thing, and I read some weird article that Google or some Silicon Valley Startups were suggesting to career women that they needed to bank their their eggs. Yeah, I think Apple subsidizes it or something like that. It's either Microsoft, Apple, Google, or Facebook. I yeah. don't know which. It was I was like, well, do they do the same thing for sperm? Because I think it's a less intensive medical process. Well, to yeah. collect sperm, they might subsidize the freezing. Well, yeah, I guess for when you donate eggs, you have to you have to like super quickly mature the egg. So you have to have all these injections of hormones over mm -hmm. a certain period of time. It just sounds really terrible. It sounds uncomfortable. I'll say that. It sounds uncomfortable. And if you're doing it, I feel for you. And then beyond the FDA screening guidelines, which I talked about earlier, um, it's up to the individual sperm banks uh, to do any additional screening paperwork, information handling, and stuff like that. So if you're in the market for sperm, make sure to figure out what your sperm bank uh, and your fertility doctor are looking for, where they're getting it from, what they screen for, if you're worried about that kind of thing in the future of your potential child. And I was curious because I don't really know anything about sperm banks. It's not anything that had ever entered into my mindscape. So <laughs> I actually looked up a large one. Um, there's one that came up. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. I came across this name searching for articles related to sperm donations and sperm banks. I was curious exactly what a big one is and does. And reading their facts was really fascinating. They have a facts and their website, FAQ on their website. Uh, I learned that they will indeed send a sperm donation to your house in case you want to do a home insemination in the privacy of your home. But if you don't use all of it, you can't return it. <laughs> They don't want it back. I just almost spit coffee all over. <laughs> don't send it back. They don't want it. I don't think the U.S. Postal Service wants it either. They don't want it. <laughs> I also found this whole, this whole blurb uh, fascinating. This is directly from their website. We are willing to send your donor specimen to any address specified on your order form, but there are some items that you will need to consider. 
While some states prohibit insemination by anyone other than a licensed physician, don't ask your cousin to do it, some require that a husband provide written consent prior to insemination in order for his name to be placed on the birth certificate. Others require proof of insemination within an anonymous donor semen in order for the recipient's partner to be placed on the birth certificate as a parent. <sighs> okay, so I like that they mention husband, and I'm, I'm very confused by that because uh, usually a lot of sperm bank buyers are lesbian couples. But which one's the husband, Sarah? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My, then, I, I want to make it clear that I don't ask that question to lesbians, which one's the man and which one's the woman, because yeah, they're but, both women, and that's the point. But this Zytex is making this determination, and I was just like, oh, this is not okay. Like, which one's the husband? And this is, this is from last night. Like, I looked this up last night. This is not from, like, 1992. This is, like... This is not a very special episode of the Golden Girls. This <laughs> exactly. is... 2019 reality. Exactly. I was also fascinated to learn how a shipment is received and what it looks like in the FAQs. It says each unit arrives in a frozen screw cap unit that is clipped to a metal support rod to aid removal from a refrigerated tank. And since I watched X-Files in the 90s, I was thinking like, this is like that giant and the dry ice comes out and then all the smoke. The tank is cooled with liquid nitrogen trapped in spongy material to prevent spillage, hence the, na hence the name dry shipper. Each tank is shipped in a cardboard box and the shipment includes a packing slip with summary of records, Thawing instructions, a letter letter from our medical director, and a return shipping label and applicable invoice. I thought you couldn't return sperm, so I don't understand why they put the return shipping address on there. I don't either. <laughs> I did learn that the U.S. has no law limiting the number of children a, do a donor sperm can produce, but... Zytex has its own guideline of 60 family units, I'm in air quotes, family units, and I'm assuming that's families and not kids. I was curious how long sperm bakes. Um, keep sperm, and for, as Emily suggested earlier, you can keep it pretty much forever. It's frozen as long as the apocalypse doesn't come and all the power goes out and uh, Walt Disney's head is, stops being frozen Aww. and everything falls out. Um, how long can you store frozen sperm cryopreserved specimens according to Verifax cryo, Cryobank? When properly stored and used, the cryopreserved will remain viable for indefinite amount of time, which I think wow. is what you said. Pregnancies have been recorded for cases in which sperm has been stored for 20 years. And that lines up with the embryo. The tw Maybe that 20-year number was for sperm because it's still assisted reproductive mm -hmm. technology. Right. Because I couldn't find any information about that child versus I could find the 13-year-old embryo, the middle schooler embryo. No, high school freshman. Then, then is, is the freezing damaging to the sperm cells? And they try not to damage it, but from this estimate from Fairfax Cryobank again, they said approximately 50% or more sperm cells survive the freezing thawing process because they have that cryopreservative in it. And the fertilization capable of surviving sperm cells is not jeopardized, which is good because that's the whole reason for this. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be pretty consistent across the board when I searched how long a sperm oak cryobank can store sperm. How, however, the cryobank generally tends to limit how many babies or family units a sperm donor can produce. 
There are, of course, course, the sperm bank controversies I went into a little bit earlier, and I'll talk a little bit about those just because they're interesting and horrible. (laughs) So this is a new one that I just came across last night. Wendy Norman and John, her son. The case of Wendy Norman and her son, John, her son, John, suffers from severe mental illness, illness uh, presumably inherited from his sperm donor father. They chose pretty careful, carefully through the list of the sperm donors. Wendy Norman was in a lesbian relationship at the time, and she and her partner wanted to have a child, which was John. Um, his, the sperm donor was not, did not disclose his schizophrenia and bipolar, severe bipolar disorder. And the, the way that they found out that he was a sperm donor is that the internet, of course, John, his son, uh, in third gr- her son, he, he was violent and threatened to kill himself in the third grade. Oh, no. And after a search by her son, because he's like, I'm mixed up, what is wrong with me? He searched the donor number online and found a mugshot. Oh, uh, because no. Because this apparently was a problem with a lot of his half-siblings of sperm donors. Wendy is currently suing Zytex because she wants Zytex to disclose to all the people who bought this guy's sperm about the donor's troubles and his uh, mental illness. So to be clear, the sperm donor lied about his mental illness issues and his education level uh, and such forth. And, you know, this was 13, 14 years ago at this point because I think John was a young teenager at this point. So they did not disclose after they found it out, but apparently various people found his mugshot online after he was disclosed to be the father because after you're 18, I guess Cytex can choose to disclose the information to the child. It's probably like open and closed adoptions. Different clinics have different what they they are willing Mm -hmm. or legally allowed to do. So on Zytex's website, I noticed that they they have been around for 40 years and they pride themselves on having the most number of sperm donors who are open to the, disclosing their information. Mm. There's some, it's something they're proud of. So that came up. And so Wendy, does. I don't think she wants any money from them. She just wants the other people who bought this dude's sperm to know that he has schizophrenia, is a criminal, and has you know, severe bipolar disorder, and people need to know that. Then there's the Indiana fertility doctor, and this is a recent-ish case, 2016. One woman discovered eight other siblings that she had following a commercial DNA test, and apparently this is more and more common with the 23andMe and such. Mm -hmm. You can find siblings you never knew you had. The era of family secrets is ending. (laughs) She investigated to learn that her biological father was her mother's fertility doctor. Oh, no. Yeah, according to court documents from Marion County, he admitted to donating, donating in air quotes, sperm over 50 times (gasps) to help women get pregnant. Yep, 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 yep. Then there's the Dutch fertility doctor and uh, Dr. Carbot. He's actually uh, been dead for a couple years. But he called himself a pioneer in the field of fertilization. He used his own sperm and was taken to court after DNA tests revealed he was the father of 49 children of his patients. And none of the patients consented to the specific doctor 
No. Donors. No. His office was closed in 2009 because it was found he had falsified uh, data and donor descriptions. Yeah, he probably had donor descriptions, and instead it was his sperm. Mm. Yeah. And then there are so many cases, you just have to look up sperm donor fertility doctor. Unfortunately, it comes up, 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 up quite a few times. So we'll end on the sperminator. <laughs> It's just a bad nickname. The Sperminator is a freelance sperm donor. His name is Ari Nagel. He's freelance in that he doesn't, uh, he has no banked sperm in sperm banks at all. He just donates it freely to women of the world who want babies. He's a math professor, and in his spare time, he donates sperm to childless women and couples. And it sounds like most of them are lesbian couples. The 2017 count was that he has 26 children. He meets women in the public bathroom, and the uh, and a couple articles I read, Target was mentioned, so <laughs> <laughs> going to Target bathroom, maybe there's something going down, I don't know. He ejaculates into an instead soft cup, so it's one of those soft cups for when you are having your period and you want to use a cup instead of a tampon, and then the women take the cup and insert it into their vaginas, obviously, when during their fertile, fertile period. Apparently, he has a very busy schedule traveling the world, donating his sperm on top of being a math professor. And he's produced quite a few children, so his sperm seems pretty successful. And the mothers of his babies have apparently a social group, and they get together. And if they're close to each other, they will invite each other to their baby showers. And Nagel just, he, he claims that he just likes to help. He's been a bone marrow donor. He's got three kids of his own. His wife's not really on board with the whole thing, but... He likes to help. Okay. <laughs> Takes all types to make a world. Exactly. I figured out why that nickname bothers me. It sounds like he destroys sperm. And he does the opposite. I don't know. That's, it's ungrammatical. That's what bothers me. <laughs> I'm just never going to look at the Target bathroom the same ever again. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I think it just bothers me because they're never clean. Yeah. They're yeah. always dirty. He's, he travels all over the world. I guess there was a, an interview on Good Morning America or something like that. I don't huh. know. And I, he, got, like, he got requests from women all over the world after that. All right. Yeah. He's got nice blue eyes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. So if you want to become a sperm donor, uh, you would... Uh, it sounds like you can make quite a bit of money if you're chosen to be a sperm donor. Zytex says that about less than 3% of the people who want to be donors actually are chosen to be donors. And uh, if you're chosen, it sounds like you can make like $100, $200 a week for two donations. Yeah. That's not that bad. No, it's not bad for a college student to do something you're probably already doing anyway. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> But you got to be real healthy. Like I was, I was going through that list of disqualifications, yeah. and I was disqualified on item two, other than the fact that I'm a woman. But <laughs> uh, physical exam, yeah, there's um, just no age. way. The age is the upper limit. Um, it it was it disqualifies depending on the the cryobank, thirty four to thirty nine. Mm -hmm. Like 
40 seems to be the upper limit, which is understandable because sperm tends to be less mo motile, less mobile after a certain age in men, even though men can usually impregnate women up until their 70s, right? It depends on the guy. Yeah, it depends on the man. This is a complicated episode. It is complicated, and to be fair, it grossed me out. Like, every time I was reading about the fertility doctors, I was like... Oh, that's oh, just horrifying. It's so awful. It's so awful and unethical. It reminds me of the dentist in Oklahoma that was reusing tools on his patients oh, and gross. infecting them. Like, it's just... Mm. It's such a medical violation of your patience and ethics and it's just bad right so bad mm -hmm. and then what do you do you you have a kid and you're glad you have the kid but there's all this murkiness around like their conception like poor wendy norman and her son john this poor kid is you know they just want to know like what is the history so that they can get this kid some treatment well and it's pretty common it's my understanding. I'm not a doctor. That with schizophrenia, you can see symptoms and talk to your child about symptoms they might be suffering at around the age of seven. Yes. Maybe even a little earlier, yes. asking them questions and getting them care fairly early. Mm -hmm. Like John started showing more extreme symptoms in third grade. Mm, uh, poor baby. Yeah. So it's something where even, you know, I'm not, nobody's saying that these families are going to reject their children, but it can help them have a healthier life where they aren't frightened and confused about what's happening to them and then trying to self-medicate with things like cigarettes and because I know a lot of schizophrenics smoke because the nicotine yeah. helps. It's interesting. Yeah, the earlier with schizophrenia, the earlier you start, I, my impression is that the better off and the better life that the person can have, just their life is better overall if you can start them on seeking treatment and looking for symptoms and even just recognizing that the symptoms are a symptoms of an illness and not mystical voices or right. the hallucinations are oh i'm having a hallucination not right there are cats on my ceiling or whatever well maybe there are cats on. i mean ceiling. yeah again maybe grandpa did see a ghost but maybe grandpa was schizophrenic maybe there it was both <laughs> it could be and i know psilocybin is being looked at for treatment for schizophrenia, which is oh, cool. Oh, really? That's interesting. My understanding of psilocybin and other hallucinogenics uh, in for people who are seeking treatment for mental illness is that it disrupts the sense of self and it kind of resets afterwards. So that's why they think it's a good treatment or a useful treatment for severe depression and I think anxiety was looked at, but not as much, but it's for severe depression. It can really help kind of interrupt that sense of self and reset it. Neat. Yeah. So it doesn't get too deep, the depression. Yeah. So mm. I know that there, ketamine. Yeah, ketamine is being looked at too, and microdosing. Mm-hmm. There's a really good book by Michael Pollan. I believe it's called, I don't know what it's called right this second, but it's a new book, and it's basically about his his experimentation with psychedelics in order to treat his anxiety and depression issues. And apparently it's, it's, it's like blowing your mind or expanding your mind or something like that. It's, it's really good. Cool. Mm -hmm. I think we should stop doing research or reuse projects. Great. 
<laughs> so the last episode was the last one, folks. <laughs>